Okay, what I would like to do today is a quick review of a couple items from Joshua and then jump into Judges. So two or three slides here. I think the PowerPoints are all uploaded. I think they were up a day or two ago also, unlike Isaiah, which uh, just got up early this morning, I think. Um, so the Jordan Conquest Barrier. All right, as, as the book of Joshua ends and um, Judges begins, we, we need to consider where we're at geographically and what the next step is for God's people. And so around 1400 B.C., um, Amenhotep III in, in Egypt, you got a new generation. They're in the book of Numbers and um, Deuteronomy. The old generation has, has passed off the scene. They've been rebellious. They spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, complaining, grumbling. They die off because uh, when the spies originally went into the land, they believed the report of the majority, the ten, instead of the report of the minority, the two, and their unfaithfulness led them to die. Um, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam also died. Um, they also were unfaithful at various times to God. And so they didn't enter the promised land either. So they get here, and so now you have the, the problem of the, of the Jordan River. That was, that was the barrier, okay? Now, this is a reminder of, of the Red Sea barrier when they fled out of um, Egypt. They had the same problem. They get out of Egypt, and all of a sudden, we're at the Red Sea. So now we're getting ready to take the land, but again, we got this water in front of us. It's actually the same time of year as the uh, Exodus. There's uh, new beginnings, just like the Exodus. They're going to cross on dry ground, just like the Exodus. And um, the idea of God's provision and protection is running all through, really, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the whole Old Testament history is about how God provides. You know, he goes before them in a, in a cloud by day and a fire by night, and it's, it's his presence, it's provision, it's his protection. And so Joshua and Caleb, the two who are left from the old generation, okay, out of the 12 spies, so they're left, they saw all this. So if you can imagine, I mean, they're older now, but they saw the Red Sea episode. They saw the plague, and now they're seeing this again with the Jordan River. They make a 12-stone monument in the middle and, and uh, on the shore as a constant reminder. And so the first thing here was the barrier of the Jordan. God takes care of that for them. Boom, gone. <clears throat> the next thing was Jericho that we talked about last week. Okay, this is the gateway to the conquest. Okay? It was the first major place. It was a fortified place. It controlled the, the fort across the Jordan and access into the hill country. So they come across. Jericho is here. You've got to get this area so that you can get into the rest of the area. It's a gateway to inside of Canaan. And that was Joshua 5-7. through 7. We spent quite a bit of time last week on, on that in Jericho. The next area was Shechem and the covenant renewal. This was 20 miles north of Jericho and Ai, nestled between uh, Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And I think I showed you a picture of, of those with the actual mountains instead of just a map. And here the thing is the renewal of the covenant. If you remember from, I don't know, probably three or four weeks ago now when we talked about the covenants, the renewal of the covenant is something that happens uh, with some frequency. In Scripture, in Deuteronomy, it's often called the second law, but it's really not. It's the renewal of the covenant. Um, Joshua takes them here uh, to Shechem, and here the covenant is again uh, renewed. When Abram had first 
uh, entered Canaan, the Lord appeared to him at Shechem and affirmed that he had reached the land that he, is, he and his descendants would inherit. So Abram built a memorial altar at Shechem to commemorate that momentous event. Years later, his grandson Jacob purchased land in Shechem, dug a well, and built another memorial altar there. And then he directed his entire family to get rid of all their foreign idols at Shechem. And so then you have the blessings and the curses on Mount Ebal and Gerizim that happen here for a reason. This is a site that is uh, connected to promises with God, with the patriarchs through history, and this idea of covenant renewal. So Joshua reminds them in detail of God's promises to Abraham and to Jacob. And before they move forward into the, the more difficult days, if you will, they are gathered there to uh, remember and to renew that covenant. Similar to what happens with the transition between uh, Moses and Joshua in the book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> and then in Gibeon. And we talked about uh, the Gibeon conquest as well. And so the, the treaty that was made there, Gibeon had controlled the roads to the to inner access of Canaan. And so we've gotten through Jericho, which is out here, right? But now Gibeon is going to control access, if you will, to all of these other areas. And so that was the, the next spot. The um, Amorites coalition, okay, you can see... These different red arrows on the screen, okay, coming in as, as a coalition, they attack, and here is, is where, um, Joshua, um, <clears throat> defeats them, and really is, is who that does this, who really defeats the people, God does, Yahweh does, right, and so, uh, supernaturally, he parted the Jordan, and here we have supernatural events like the hail and the sun that stands still, etc., that take place here. And so then after that takes place, we've made inroads into the land. The end of Joshua, uh, the land begins to be distributed. And so you can see the different uh, tribes in the pockets here as it's distributed. Now, we discussed last week. And we discussed also in the week that we looked at the Canaanite culture, which we're going to briefly talk about again today. But um, we talked about how they really didn't conquer all of it. And so this is the allotment, but there's also pockets that is not conquered. And I'll have that on another slide, I think, in just a moment. And so that is the review of the book of, of Joshua that takes us into Judges. Judges chapter <coughs> 3, you have an interesting passage. It says, These are the nations the Lord left in order to test Israel. Since the Israelites had fought none of these in any of the wars with Canaan, this was to teach the future generation of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, Sidonians, Hivites, who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath. Now, <clears throat> this idea that, that God leaves them in order to test Israel, we don't have time this morning to do an entire uh, session on the idea of God's testing or discipline in the wilderness, but this is actually a very common theme throughout Scripture that I would actually encourage you to do some study on. 
in our church, we're going through um, a curriculum called The Story, which basically takes you through the Bible in uh, a year or 30, 31 weeks, uh, specifically. And in that, the point is to understand the, the plot line, the big picture of what God is doing and how you're supposed to be connected with that. And one of the things that uh, you'll notice, it's kind of interesting how my studying for that overlaps with some of our, our course material, but the idea of testing. When they were in the wilderness, the wilderness wanderings, that was a testing. The words used there, to see what was in their hearts and whether or not they would be faithful to God. The book of Hebrews talks about how God disciplines those who are his children. And so the idea of discipline and testing, you can also throw in here the idea of uh, the word judge. Um, we think of judge as someone who sits in a courtroom, you know, with a gavel. But that's not what these guys were. These guys were mostly military guys and, and rulers also. But in the Bible, the word uh, judge <coughs> has to do more with... Judge or judgment. That's doing mishpat, mishpat. And, and what that really <coughs> boils down to, um, John Oswald would say, is it has to do with putting things in proper order. And so this makes sense in the book of Judges because everything is chaos. You know, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And the judges come in. And they bring some order and stability, for a season at least, while the people uh, submit to God. But in addition to that, if you look at the word test and connect that with the idea of God uh, disciplining his children, what is it that he's trying to accomplish? He's trying to accomplish with his children that they would walk in the ways of the Lord, that they would get their lives in order. And so he's trying to order their steps, in a sense. And so the idea of judge and judgment in the Bible is God putting things in their proper order. And so I would actually connect it with another term, which we, we know mostly as peace, but shalom. Because the word shalom is actually also about things being in their proper place, in their proper order. So when Jesus returns, what is it he's going to do? He's going to put everything in its proper place and proper order, and he's going to rule over all of it. And so you see a microcosm of that as you're looking through the things that happen in the Old Testament. Uh, definitely the prophets are all about this, but you also see it throughout the historical books as well. So any, any other questions or thoughts or comments? The Shalom can also mean where that idea of everything is proper. Yeah, that's exactly what Shalom has to do with, actually. Okay. It has to do with putting it in its proper place. Mm -hmm. Things are out of order. God brings Shalom. It's not just, uh, we think in our culture, you know, shalom is peace, peace is the, the lack of war. It's really way bigger than that concept. Shalom is really an overarching principle that runs through the whole scriptures, that God is bringing shalom to the world. So, your aching body is because your body does not have shalom. So, so judges begins in the, in the first chapter is telling us about the fact that there are still these groups to be driven out and that this is part of the discipline, the testing, or I'm going to throw another word on the board now too, uh, the education or instruction 
What's the Hebrew word for that? For instruction, anybody know? The Torah, uh, right? Again, in our American culture, we, we've early on been taught it's law, and then we get the same misconception that we do with the word judge. You know, law and judges, they go together, and none of us like law, none of us like judges, right? Um, unless you want to be a lawyer or something. But we don't, we don't like that. But that's not what it's about. Uh, the Torah is about the education. It's the instruction. It's God's instruction that you would learn to walk in the ways of Yahweh. And so that's what it's all about. The book of Proverbs is, is replete with this idea that a father is teaching his son uh, the ways of God. Don't forsake the instructions of your father and your mother. Um, but instead, you know, put them into practice and live those out. All right. So. Judges. <clears throat> All right, so this is the diagram that I was talking about here. So you can see from this diagram that the Canaanites and other peoples are still in the land. Okay, So the colored brownish area here, this outline, is the area where, to some degree at least, okay, Israel has established itself in is, is providing um, a place to live. So there's still a lot of areas all through here. Okay, the Philistines are going to come in. The coastal plain area, the sea peoples are going to come in here. We're going to talk about them in a minute. That have not been um, taken over by them. So the 300 to, to 400 year time period of the judges is what we're specifically looking at today. Ramses III is going to defeat the sea peoples. Okay. And I'll talk about who they are in just a moment, causing them to settle in South Palestine where they're going to join the Philistines. Okay? So this coastal plain okay, is going to be very difficult for Israel to conquer because the sea peoples are going to come in and that's where they're going to settle. They originally try to come down into Egypt, but they're eventually pushed out by Egypt, and so they're going to settle in there. This is also a time when the Egyptian power is decreasing. That's beneficial for Israel because Israel has controlled this area here. Remember that we have a, a teeter-totter seesaw effect, right? Between the areas of the Fertile Crescent. Fertile Crescent's here, right? Uh, what countries are over here? You know it. Come on. What's over here? Palestine. Palestine's here. Palestine and Canaan's here. Babylon? Yes. Okay, so Babylon's over here. And what other country? Syria. Yes. Syria. Okay, and which one's over here? Egypt. Yes, Egypt. Okay, and right in the middle is Canaan, Palestine, and so who wants to always control it? Whatever world powers in control, right? And so if it's Assyria, then they want it. If it's Egypt, they want it. For a couple of reasons. It's that massive trade route area, right? So this is how Solomon gets so rich. He owns the only toll booth, you know, in the in the I-4 corridor, you know? Everybody's got to go through it and pay him. That's what's going on here. But on top of that, it's also the stopping point if you're on the other side of the popped 
dog empire. So in other words, when Assyria is in control, what, what does Assyria want to do? Well, empires never want to stop, right? They're always trying to push their borders out and take more land. And so if Assyria is coming in here, well, Egypt doesn't want to be controlled by Assyria. So what do they need to do? Yes, so they got to push back here, okay? And so this whole area, okay, becomes this uh, war ground area where they're constantly pushing back against each other. And this, this is what you have going on throughout the entire Old Testament history. It's just a matter of which country is top and which one's trying to become top. So when you get to the prophets... This is what needs to be kept in mind all the time, which country it is, which is why, what does this stand for? Exactly, right? So Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, a short period of Israel independence, and then Rome. Okay, so that's your key on remembering which power is in control. Of course, you've got to kind of line it up with some dates or something, but... But those are the powers in the order that they go in. So the Egyptian power is dwindling at this time. One of the markers, you know, for your, for your brain and the timeline, if you will, is everybody kind of knows that the exodus, the world power is who? Well, Egypt is, right? Now, they're not the only one. There's still stuff going on over in Mesopotamia. But, I mean, Egypt, from the biblical perspective, is, is the ruling country. So they're beginning to lose... They're dwaning in power, all right, by the time we're getting to judges. So that causes unrest, because one of the things that happens is as soon as you have a power that is losing its grip, think about how many hundreds of city-states and other nation federations that may have formed there are between here and here. If, if the, the strong grip of that power is relaxing itself, what are they going to want to do? rise up and get independence while they can because someone else is going to come along. Plus, if you're not the top dog and you're under somebody else, you're paying taxes. You're paying tribute money to these people. And in um, response or the other, the this is the whole suzerain vassal treaty thing, okay? So the vassal pays the, the taxes and then the suzerain, they offer protection. So one of the other things, you'll see this happen is that, um, we'll talk about this a little bit in my Isaiah class later, but when uh, Judah, and, no, sorry, Judah's here, when Israel, the, the northern kingdom, is linking up with, let's say, Assyria, okay, they're paying them tribute. And if Israel gets attacked, Assyria's supposed to come defend it. And then Judah, the bottom, is not linking up with anybody right now. So Egypt is trying to get Judah to link up with them. Why? Well, if Assyria is already to the northern kingdom, what do they want to do? They want to keep going. And after the southern kingdom is Egypt. So the only thing standing between Egypt and Assyria is the southern kingdom. And so they start begging uh, the southern kingdom, Ahaz, Hezekiah, like, hey, listen, come partner with us. We'll, we'll help defend you against Assyria. And so... Similar things here. The, the grip is loosening, and so there's this opportunity to rise up and try to become independent. 
Israel at this point is a loose federation of tribes held together by their covenant with Yahweh. So they don't have a king, right? There's no king yet. We haven't reached the monarchy with Saul, um, David, and Solomon, and then the divided kingdom. And so what holds these guys together? Um, I guess I should look at this map. <coughs> so they're settled in all these areas, and there's three things that kind of hold them together. It's the fact that they have a covenant with Yahweh. That's the overarching. And the three pieces of that are the circumcision. That's the sign of their covenant. The tabernacle, which currently is at Shiloh with Ephraim. And the Ark of the Covenant. So these are the things that, that hold them together. But they're scattered. You know, They don't have cars. They don't have airplanes. So it takes a little time to get these places. And it's a very mountainous area. They're not in the coastal plains. They're in this hill country. So a lot of up and downs, which has an advantage because that means it's harder for who to come conquer you, all those enemies, right? Because it's the hill country. And we'll see that in a little bit when they fight some battles in the plains. All right. <clears throat> so the sea peoples. All right, the sea peoples come in all right, from Crete, and the Grecian areas, okay? And this is some of the sea peoples. We're, we're going to focus mainly on uh, the Philistines, and we'll talk a little bit about the Phoenicians, all right? So they come down here, and they're going to settle in what you see here as these red dots. These are the areas. And you can see that they're along water areas. Even here down in Egypt... Okay, they're along this, uh, the tributary here. But they're going to get pushed out of Egypt and settle along here. Some of them will be pushed this way. And then some of them, uh, they think they came and settled here and then kind of worked their way down a little bit. Okay, So those are uh, where the sea peoples come from. The... Philistines are going to be the biggest threat to the Israelites. I think your book mentioned that as well. Um, Did you say the Philistines are sea peoples too? Yeah. They're going to be one of the biggest threats. So, the sea people from Crete, all right, this is what I was just talking about. Tried to settle in Egypt, Ramses III is able to defeat them and he pushes them out. The other. Um, Alternative is instead of the island of Crete up in the, the Grecian area from mainland Greece. The Phoenicians and the Philistines are going to become a threat. The Phoenicians are going to be um, north of where it says Philistines. So Philistines are here and then the Phoenicians will be up there. The, the word Philistine, um, he's not here this morning, but Robert asked me couple weeks ago about this and so the answer to his question i said at the time I, I didn't know and i didn't remember but the word actually does come the word palestine does come from the philistines it's actually it's not even a translation it's a transliteration if you remember from week one so they just put in <coughs> new letters for the old word they will be the biggest threat but you don't see them as much I shouldn't say as much, but you see them primarily in which judge's life. Like one of the last judges. He-Man. Who's the He-Man of the judges? 
Who's the Hulk? Who's the Hulk? Yeah, I, just, I know his name. I can't think of it right now. Come on, yeah. Samson. Samson, yeah, right? Samson, okay? So he's not the only one. Um, I think it's Shamgar. Kills a few hundred of them. But the, the bulk of the material with the Philistines is with Samson. And so these are the, the sea peoples, the Philistines and the, and the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, okay, Sidonians, Okay, stands generally along uh, stands generally for all the Phoenicians living along the Mediterranean coast north of the area occupied by the Philistines. So, what you want to do in your head is somehow help yourself remember that the Philistines are on the bottom and the Phoenicians are on the top. Okay, um, they were not overthrown until Nebuchadnezzar in 605 to 562 along with Tyre. So what does that tell us? That tells us that for hundreds of years when they show up, that they're kind of untouchable. Okay, They were warriors, um, and they were not easily defeated. So it's not until Babylon comes on the scene in the 600s. All right? we're, we're in the thousands still, you know, in the beginning of the Judges. So 1400s, down to 1300s. To 1100, so it's quite some time before anybody's able to defeat them. The the uh, Phoenicians or the Sidonians is what is uh, modern day um, Lebanon. So it's still the same name. Uh, there's a secondary name, Saida, S-A-I-D-A. Uh, but the name of, of Sidon. So you hear in the Bible about Tyre and Sidon. Okay, Those two, they kind of go together almost all the time. And so they are up here. Those are two of the main cities for the Phoenicians. Okay, So Sidon is, is still there. As a geographic term, it first occurs in Genesis 10.19 in the description of the territory of the Canaanites, which is said to have extended from there to the south as far as Gaza. So they're talking about how the uh, Canaanites have that area. This city is mentioned at various points in the different historical books, uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Ezra, etc., and figures in a number of uh, prophetic oracles, including Isaiah and Ezekiel, in the prophetic literature. So, this ancient history of uh, Sidon is closely related to that of the Phoenicians generally, an aggressive seafaring people on the eastern Mediterranean coast. Sidon was one of the four most important towns. The other three were um, Aradus, A-R-A-D-U-S, you, you don't have to know that for anything, but Byblos, B-Y-B-L-O-S, and then Tyre. So the two you should kind of be familiar with are Tyre and Sidon. They're both on the map. And they frequently occur together in scripture. Um, in the Tel um, Armano letters from the uh, mid mid 1300s BC, a king of Sidon named Zimridi is mentioned. It says, under Tiglath Pileser, the Assyrians made an expedition to the Mediterranean coast and received tribute from Byblos, Sidon, and Arvad. Hiram was the king of Tyre at the time of David and Solomon and provided workmen and material to Solomon for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he also assisted Solomon in the development of the Red Sea trade. 
And then, as I mentioned, Nebuchadnezzar is the first to actually um, conquer them. Now, the Philistines, we've already mentioned where they come from and where their name is, is uh, derived from. With the excavations that have been done in the Philistine areas, what they've found is the pottery was very similar to the Mycenaean pottery. And this is why um, they connect them with Greece, because of the pottery remnants that they have found. They also found that the temples were very similar. And... The information they have about Goliath's armor seems to also match up with what they know um, about the Mycenaean people as well. The Philistine pottery is characterized by distinctive red and black decorations, including stylized birds and concentric semicircles and spiral loops painted on a white background. Female figurines found at Ashdod are very similar to the figurines of the mother goddess found at Mycenaean sites. And a series of three Philistine temples were uncovered that resemble those that are found, um, as I put up on the screen there. Um, they rapidly assimilated, though, the Canaanite culture of Palestine. So their distinctive pottery gradually became indistinguishable from the Canaanite pottery. And the Philistine gods and goddesses that you see in the Bible are Canaanite. So uh, Dagon, the principal Philistine deity, had temples at Gaza and Ashdod, Ekron, uh, boasted of a temple dedicated to Beelzebub, and the goddess Ashtaroth was worshipped at uh, Bethshan. So, the word, if you haven't heard it before, syncretism, ha has to do, what's that? Mixo. Yes, sir, yeah. exactly. The mixing of cultures, okay? This is most often discussed uh, with biblical studies in the realm of their religious or, or faith views. And usually it is in the realm of discussing Israel's syncretism with the nations around them. And so, as you'll see in a, in a few minutes and from our previous classes together, the Israelites adapted many of the Canaanite cultural practices, which God has expressly forbidden them to do, and that's syncretism when you blend those together, all right? So that's what it means. If you um, go in to, uh, you know, a culture to evangelize them, and, and then instead of them picking up uh, your faith, you pick up their faith, well, you've been syncretized, you know? So that's what's going on with that. So the Philistine power reaches its peak in the mid-11th century as they continue to oppress Israel. And uh, the various remains that have been excavated are where we get much of, of that information from. The Hivites, you can see again on the map, so we've talked about the, the Philistines and the Phoenicians or the Sidonians, and then the Hivites are up here, okay? So they're north of the Sea of Galilee, and they extend over a little bit more to the east. I just had to chop the map a little bit to fit everything on the screen here. So... They're living north of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. I don't know about a seal of Galilee, but um, the Sea of Galilee. In the Lebanon Mountains, west of a line running from Mount Baal Hermon to um, Hamath. These are descendants of Canaan. If you were to look at the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10, verse 17, and the corresponding genealogy in 1 Chronicles 115, 
They are descended from Ham, one of Noah's sons, through the Canaanites. They are therefore not a Semitic people. They don't come through Shem's line, in spite of the Semitic names given to a certain of them in the Bible. They're indigenous inhabitants of the land promised by God to the Israelites. So Israel um, unwittingly makes a pact with them when they make a deal with the Gibeonites, which is a village just north of Jerusalem, who, as you know, through trickery, were able to escape the eradication God had decreed. Geographically, the Hivites appear to inhabit the, the central and north regions of the land, okay, from Gibeon, just north of Jerusalem, through Shechem, where, where a Hivite raped Jacob's daughter, up uh, toward Lebanon and Mount Hermon. And they have uh, some contact, it seems, in the Transjordan, so over on the, the right side as well. So, they're up here, but they extend down into, into this area as well. Hamor, the, the father of Shechem, is uh, descended from them as well. Uh, so then we have the Canaanites. So what we've, what we've been looking at right now is from the, the verses we had on the screen in the beginning, from the beginning of, Je of uh, the book of Judges, these are the groups that are still in the land that God is testing them with. So the Canaanites are the other large group that we have constant contact with. Uh, the southern border defined by an arc from the southern tip of the Dead Sea to the southeastern shore of the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean seashore represented the western border as far north as, um, as far north as just south of the kingdom of Ugarit. So basically what, what you just want to think is uh, Philistines here, Sidonians or Phoenicians here, Hivites here, and then um, kind of just think of a, a little bit of an arc, okay, up there, and then Canaanites, <coughs> all right, which run through here. Um, and the, for the Philistines and the Phoenicians, think coastal plain, all right? That's where they are. Uh, the Phoenicians... <coughs> This should have been probably up with the, the Phoenician section. Sorry. They, um, their alphabet is proto-Canaanite. That means it's related to the, the Canaanites' alphabet of the 18th, 17th centuries B.C. So here is um, a couple of positives about the Canaanite culture. We know most of the negatives. There's a couple of good things. Okay, the alphabet. Um, and the earliest known inscription in Phoenician comes from uh, Byblos and dates back to about 1000 B.C. So that's Canaanite and Phoenician culture there. But we know mostly uh, negatives, cons, related to them, including the Baal cycle. So when we talk about the syncretism that takes place, it's important to understand the, the Baal cycle and how it's connected to agriculture. This is one of the big things that causes the uh, Israelites to really go off track with God. They had been in Egypt, okay? In Egypt, well, what is Egypt known for? What geographic feature? Nile. The Nile River. The Nile River brings fertility, right? A very fertile area, okay? They don't need to rely upon seasonal rain. Well, guess what? They're not in Egypt anymore. So they're now in Canaan. Canaan doesn't have a Nile River. So 
What do they have to rely upon? The rain. The rain. If the rains don't come, the crops don't grow, and we have a famine, which is why so many times, what do you read about in Canaan or Palestine? There's a what in the land? A famine. And they always go to where? Egypt. Egypt right? Why? Because it's got the Nile River. They always got food, right? Except, you know, when they had the seven years of famine in Joseph's time. So, the battle cycle, all right? Winter, spring, summer, fall, and then it starts over again here. So you have the the gods of, of Ma and Baal, and they're in this, like, war, if you will. So in the winter, Ma kills Baal. In the spring, Baal rises. And then it's this cycle that just repeats itself. And so the Canaanites believe that the... Uh, activity on earth and the activity of the gods was closely interconnected and that you could influence them. And so this was related to the agricultural fertility of the land, and that became connected with fertility or sexual practices amidst themselves. And so the idea of the sexualized um, religious practices of the Canaanites is tied, at least in part, to this understanding of gods, Baal, and the agricultural cycle. And so in an effort to um, please or manipulate Baal, they would have uh, prostitutes as part of their religious activity, and this was a normal part of it, which is stuff that God expressly, again, forbid his people to be part of. So... The seductive powers of the Canaanite Asherah cult to the Israelites is attested by several Hebrew inscriptions in the form of blessings from the 8th century that speak of both Yahweh and Asherah in the same sentence. And so again, you see the syncretism that takes place with that. The, the fertility cycle <coughs> is demonstrated with Baal and this uh, relief here of the thunderbolt in hand, bringing forth the dew and the rain from heaven to the fields of Canaan. Okay? So the temple prostitution and the sexual fertility rites and religious worship helped Baal to resurrect in the spring and defeat Ma, death. And so this sounds, you know, strange, probably both to American and modern ears, that uh, the agricultural cycles are based on what's going on with the gods and them killing each other and resurrecting every single year for how many thousands of years, right? And that your sexual activity could help resurrect Baal. Um, but some of our beliefs as Christians sound very strange to people outside the faith, right? That we would believe certain things. Yeah. Yeah, but those stories as far as um, with the gods of the land and stuff like that, does it correlate with... Um the creation story, like for example, the moon disappears every two minutes, moon once. Yes, they do. Um, like I can't give you a timeline yeah. from from A to Z on it, but as you have um, the views on the creation and then the floods and all that, which were all those, you know, the various interrelationships between these different gods, um, those continue in the same fashion for. Um, the agriculture, which is based on giving you life every day. So how do we get life? The gods. How do we sustain or continue to have life? The gods. And the interrelationship between them. So the, the big thing with Judaism 
is this, not only is God, it's Yahweh. Yeah, Yahweh brings you life. You know, it's, it's not, your sexual practices connected to resurrecting Baal. Because God never, Yahweh never died. Yahweh doesn't need to be resurrected, except in the form of Jesus when he comes to earth and is killed by man, right? So you don't have any of that going on. And so, yes, they are all um, connected to that. And what you'll generally see if you study, like, anthropologically different cultures is that a lot of cultures have the same gods. They just go by different names. Yeah. And so, in fact, some of the, the critics of Christianity, for instance, will argue that, um, you know, our faith and our God and how we view the resurrection and all this are just picked up from all these pagan mm-hmm. myths, you know, throughout time. So then you're back at the issue that we talked about with John Walton, etc., of how you do comparative analysis mm-hmm. between these different things. So, um, but yeah, good questions. All right, so the, the various aspects there, I think the next slide, yeah. So the, the pantheon of the Canaanite religion included Baal and then both Asherah and Ashtaroth, depending on what you, you read. And for Asherah, you sometimes have Atherath. So uh, it's the wife of his, um, his god, or the god El, um, Lady Atherath of the, uh, the sea, and Ugarit is what that phrase comes from, and Creatress, the gods, Creatress of the gods. And so um, Baal and Asherah together, she, she gives birth to uh, 70 more gods. And so you have all these gods. Um, and so that's going to uh, result in various different conflicts because in, in the polytheistic worldview, like, they act like people. So if you create God in your image, well, he's going to be just like you and me. Um, in contrast, God created us in his image. Um, and so it's kind of the, the flip or the reverse of that. All right. That was um, the previous slide, by the way. Just, there's an inscription. This is an archaeological find. There's an inscription up here that says, um, I forget which one, one of these two. And so that's just a further evidence of, this, of what we're talking about there. All right, and so this is the, the rain cycle that I was referring to. Okay, They're in a new land, they're in a hill country, no Nile River, and so the rites and the rituals and the incantations um, can influence the gods. That's what the Canaanites believed. And so the syncretism that I mentioned to you uh, plays in, and this is uh, part of the problem of Judges 1 through 3 that's going on. So, the actual judges themselves, from about 1400 to 1100 BC, a time of testing from 3-1, as we already saw. Uh, the quick timeline here is that Joshua dies here, the judges reign, and it won't be till uh, 1050 or so that Saul becomes uh, king. So, this is the time period we're looking at. Okay? A couple things about the judges. Uh, they're, they're non-hereditary. Okay? So it doesn't go in line. It's not a uh, dynasty succession, you know, like uh, King David to King Saul or Solomon um, type of thing. Um, you have different people. There's prophets, farmers, soldiers, Samson the pleasure seeker, if you will. And the three types of oppression that we're dealing with is imperial, political, and economical. So it's not all the same. 
you know, the Midianites, the Philistines, how they treat them uh, are not all the same. What is the same is that this is brought on by God, the divine um, punishment or retribution, because of their lack of faith and their rebellion of the covenant. You could go with, literally, there's probably 25 or more different ways, there's maybe 100 ways, to phrase out the cycle. But sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation um, is simple enough of the cycle that happens repeatedly. Or if you want something a little more complex, oh, did I take it out? I thought I had it in there. Yeah, it's right there. Um, rejection, reaction by God, God's retribution, the repentance of the people, and then God sends in a rescuer, and then the people relapse again. Um, but either way, the point is, they do the same thing over and over. <clears throat> this is a little hard for you to see from back there, but this is from the Holman. So you can probably find it in the Holman Bible Atlas or maybe a Holman Study Bible, something like that. But this just shows uh, the different places that the, the judges live. So one of the things that you notice from this is that judges, are they all in the same place? No, they're not. They're scattered all over the place, okay? And so you can also have, and you do have some that reign at the same time. And you also have various threats. So, for instance, while Samson is down here, this is Philistine territory, that doesn't preclude there being issues up here with other people. Like the Phoenicians could be messing with the Israelites here while the Philistines are messing here. And you could also have Moab and Edomites messing down here trying to come across the Jordan River. So you can have multiple things going on at once. All right. All right, Othniel. Okay, the first of the the six major judges, Othniel, Kushan, Rishatham. Okay, a lot of debate about this and a few other um, cultural aspects with the judges. Um, they oppressed for eight years. Mesopotamia is one of the guesses as to where um, he is from. The, the word Kushan, the doubly wicked, that's what his name means, Kushan the doubly wicked. Um, King of Aram Naharim, which is often identified with northwestern Mesopotamia. Okay? Now, the problem is that this is the only Mesopotamian empire causing a problem in Judges if this is the case. Mesopotamia, if you remember, is way over here. Okay? Now, they do have problems with them, you know, when you get the Assyrians and the Babylonians, etc. Um, so, some do still argue that that is a Mesopotamian, and one of the possibilities is that they have had influence from all the way up into here, and it's the people here, which are ruled by here, that are bothering them. The other option some people say, well, it's really a, a mistake in, in the Hebrew text, and it's referring to Edom. And a third option is that it has to do, because there was no vowels originally, okay? So this phrase, mountainous fortress, or fortress, is used elsewhere of Edom. So again, this one's connected to Edom, but um, not just on like an error in the Hebrew text, but related to the, um, the vowels of the text. Okay, which were added way later. Um, and so it, it could be fortress, which refers to Edom. And 
therefore that's an option. So no one knows exactly for sure, but Othniel, Caleb's nephew and son-in-law, rules for uh, 40 years. His story is offered as an example presenting the relationship between Othniel and Israel as exemplary. And it's told at the beginning of Judges in such a way as to introduce the problems with which Israel and Yahweh would be confronted in Israel's remembering the rest of the era. <clears throat> so, Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord came on him and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle and the Lord handed over Cushan Rishatham, king of Aram, to him so that Othniel overpowered him. Judges 3.10 It was universally acknowledged that rulers governed by the will of the gods, and especially that the outcome of the battles depended ultimately on the intervention of the gods. The um, excavations that have been done have um, shown Tiglath Pileser, an Assyrian contemporary of the later deliverers, with references to the involvement of Ashur, the patron deity of Assyria. And centuries later, a Neo Assyrian successor to Tiglath Pileser, Shalmaneser III, credited Ashur with his victory over a western alliance of kings that included Hadadazar of Damascus and Ahab the Israelite. And here's what it said. It said, They marched against me to do war and battle with the supreme forces which Ashur, my lord, had given me, and with the mighty weapons which the divine standard, which goes before me, had granted me, I fought with them. And so that's what <coughs> has been found um, in regards to this archaeological piece right there and the annals of Tiglath-Pileser. So the connection here with the culture is that the victory is attributed to the gods. So the, the Bible is not the only place that attributes their victories to the gods. The rest of the culture did that also. So it doesn't dispute or support that Yahweh won the victory or didn't. It's just that's part of the ancient Near Eastern uh, context related to that. So the next judge is Ehud. Ehud, what do you know about him? What's he known for? He's a good oppressor. Correct, but he's a what? Left hand. Left handed man. Okay? So, what, one of the things you got to do is you got to find something unique about these guys to remember them. Othniel is uh, Caleb's nephew, right? So, Caleb, who? Joshua and Caleb, right? So, the two that were there at the Red Sea, they're also there at the Jordan River the two from the first generation that actually get to go into the promised land. And so you can see that in their families, they have also discipled to some degree, right? Because you see that here is um, a, a strong follower, right? Or faithful. Um, the judges, by the way, some would argue, kind of get worse along the way. You know, you start out with Othniel, seems to come from a pretty decent family, right? And then you end up uh, with Samson, kind of at the bottom of the pile, uh, bottom of the heap. So, Ehud, left-handed man. That's what you remember with, with Ehud. Okay, and he kills the fat king Eglon, right? So that's how you remember him also. In the Moab region. So the Moabites had an 18-year oppression. The Moabites and the Ammonites come from Lot. Okay, you remember the story? Lot has to flee. He goes up in the mountains. His wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt. He's got two daughters. They get him drunk successive nights, they sleep with him, and you get Moab and Ammon. That's where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from. Ruth is a Moabitess. Okay? We'll, we'll talk about her at the very end of our class today if we get to it. <coughs> the um, area or phrase up for debate 
in this passage is the city of palms. There's a bit of a debate about where that's referring to. Um, quite a few scholars would recommend that it is Jericho. Jericho is known as the city of palms, but that is not the only option out there. Um, Eglon, of course, the king of Moab, along with his Transjordian neighbors, the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Okay, and so Ammon, you can see, is right here. Moabites here. Amalekites come in a little lower. Okay. As a left-handed man, Ehud would have been pretty much unclean and a misfit. All right. There's a word play also on Benjamite, which means son of the right hand in the text. So these word plays you're not going to get unless you read a commentary or something, because, or if you're reading the Hebrew text, because they don't come through in English uh, or any translation, mostly. So one of the things you're going to see in the book of Judges is how God takes these people that are outcasts and that are misfits, and he does a, a work of uh, freeing his people and bringing them some peace and stability for a time with them. Looks like he's escorting Israel's tribute to Eglon, okay, which means that they are under um, the authority of the Moabites in this uh, federation. Reclaims an area north of the Arnon and across the Jordan River. He kills Eglon and he rallies the Benjamites. Okay, to push Moab back across the Jordan and has a rule or an influence for 80 years. And so, well, there's peace for 80 years. So um, the, the Moabites are pushed back across the Jordan, and, and through this, not only do they receive an um, elimination of the oppression, but they're also picking up the land that the Moabites have encroachingly taken away from them. Okay? Um, the next judge is Shamgar. He, he doesn't get much uh, space in the text, but we do notice that uh, there's a Philistine oppression going on. The other major one is going to be with what judge for the Philistines? Samson. Very good. Okay. So we just get a, a, a one-liner here, and Shamgar kills 600 with an ox goad. Okay? That's like a sharp pointy stick that you poke an ox with. All right? So that's, that's Shamgar. All right. The next major judge, okay, is Deborah, okay? And so here we have a female judge, and you have how God is using her to assist his people. There's 20 years of oppression under Jabin and, and Hazor. So if you know, think of your map, Sea of Galilee, so Dead Sea's not on here. So Hazor is up here. All right, Sisera, the commander, lives in uh, Harsheth, okay? Barak, who Deborah uh, gets to, to lead the, the soldiers, assembles soldiers from Naphtali and Zebulun atop Mount Tabor, okay? So that's right here in the middle of all these arrows. And then Sisera moves his chariots, 900 of them, okay, from Harsheth, Hagoyim, to the valley. That's over here. So purple arrows. Chariots coming in. Now chariots were the equivalent of having a Bradley tank. Or whatever the newest tank is. Um, that was the powerhouse. That was 
military strength. The Israelites, they live in what kind of geographic land? Black. Hmm? No, mountainous. Yes, mountainous, right. Sorry. So do they have chariots there? No. 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 But in contrast, Sisera has 900, which means Robert, he lives in flatlands, okay? Again, the same thing with the, the Philistines and the Phoenicians on that coastal plain, right? Well, fine, the chariots are fine for the, the coastal plain, but they're no good in the hills and the mountains, right? Okay, so what happens here is another example of, of God's miraculous winning the battle for them. Okay, this is not a human thing. So they are up on the top of the mountain, Mount uh, Tabor. And so from that vantage point, they have a good view of what's going on. All right. Um, we'll come back to the rest of the story in a minute. Okay. So. Not sure what I said. The Jezreel Valley. Okay. Is, is right here. Okay. So here's Mount Tabor. Right. He, his um, chariots are over here. The Jezreel Valley is, is right here in the middle. It's the largest and richest valley in the land of Israel. And it was named after Jezreel. Um, a town with the same name um, that's somewhere right in that same area. Now, the Jezreel Valley <coughs> is known also for um, Megiddo. And, uh -huh. and you can see Mount Carmel is up here. Let's see, um, Tabor. Tabor is right there. Nazareth is up here. You can see, unrelated to our lesson right now, but in uh, the, the bottom of a, a mountainous area there. And so they've got their soldiers up here, and you can see this area that's all in here that is a valley. So what does they do? That gives them a clear view of this whole area. All right, And then on chariots. So their soldiers are all up on top. You want us? Come get us. You get too close, we can, we can shoot on you, right, from, from the higher ground. Okay? <coughs> it's shaped like a, an arrow. Okay, that's going right in here, pointing towards the Mediterranean Sea. In Greek, it's Estrelon. It's less than two miles wide at certain points, like up here. All right, um, the head of it is known as the Plain of Megiddo because Megiddo's there. And the, the main road, called the Great Trunk Road, went through the, the gate um, of Megiddo. Um, which is one of the most strategic points in all the ancient Near East. So the Jezreel Valley is a very strategic place um, to, to, to control, um, along with Megiddo, which is right there, part of it. Um, this picture demonstrates it pretty well. This is looking from the Mediterranean Sea um, out. And, of course, uh, you kind of lose a little bit of the distance perspective with, with this picture. But what you can see is this Jezreel Valley. So the picture we had before was, was coming in from this way. Okay, so it was coming in and then the arrow expands out there. All right, so with that geographic understanding, okay, what happens here is uh, Deborah has a victory by doing something that makes no sense at all. Okay, they had the soldiers come down off the mountain and go into the valley. With chariots. You don't fight with chariots in the valley. At least not if you want to win. Um, 
But what does God do? God, God is the one behind this whole thing. He's, he's working this whole situation out. And so um, God intervenes. What chapter is that? Deborah, uh, Judges uh, 4 and 5 is Deborah's story. And so as the, the Midianites... are encamped between the hill of Mora and uh, Tabor, and then the, the Philistines later will gather there to oppose Saul. These are all things that happen in this Jezreel Valley area. Um, under the monarchy, the valley is an administrative district. And then, as Robert mentioned, you know um, the relationship to uh, Megiddo. This valley also figures in the wars of Thutmose III and Amenhotep II, and the towns there, especially Megiddo, were under Egyptian control in that uh, time period, the late Bronze Age. The southwestern side is famous as a military assembly ground um, as well, which is the same area that Sisera has his troops at, the Harosheth Hagayim. All right, so they come down off the um, <coughs> off the mountain and they fight them in the plains. And the the song that closes this up, the celebration of praise to God, is that he uses the waters. Uh, to muddy the valley up, and once the valley gets all muddied up, guess what's no good? Chariots, Chariots are no good. Okay? So they rout them, they push them out, um, and they have victory over them. Uh, Jael, the wife of uh, Heber, a Kenite, who was a friend of Jabin, then killed Sisera. And so here you have another interesting aspect. You have another uh, person in the, in the tribal allotment, um, Heber and... Um, Kenites related to um, Moses, if I remember right. And um, uh, but this guy has left that land, and he has kind of aligned himself with what is the enemy now. But his wife has evidently not, because the commander comes in to what he thinks is a friendly home, because he has a relationship with the husband, and while he's sleeping. He nails his head to the ground, literally. And that's it for him. I got a question. Um, yep. The verse says, And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. What does cover him mean? She gave him a blanket? I haven't, I haven't said it yet. In chapter 4, verse 19. I thought it meant something else. Sexual? No, I, I, I mean like she, like, drugged him or something. I don't know. Milk, you know, kind of sounds fishy. I don't know. I think he just took a nap. And she killed him. Okay. But you can check into it. You can write a paper on it if you like. <laughs> <laughs> this is a relief that's been found of the chariots fighting in a, in a war so these guys are being knocked over by the chariots basically like run like your car run over by a tank okay um, as they're racing around all right um, the next one is um, oh well it's Gideon but this is just my summary one so um, jail the wife of uh, Heber the, the Kenite kills him and then there's 40 years All right, but then we have Gideon, okay? So the Midianites from Abraham and Keturah, all right, they oppressed for seven years, raiding newly harvested crops in the late spring and early summer. So 
They spend all this time either faithfully praying and waiting on God or being a syncretist religious follower of the Canaanite and involved in fertility cults, which you shouldn't be involved in. And then you finally get your crops, and who shows up? The Midianites show up, and they take them. And so all your hard work and all your praying and whatever else for the year is wiped away. This goes on for a long time. So the Midianites encamped in the Herod Valley between Mount Gilboa and Mount Morak. Gideon tears down an altar. Now, we don't know how big this altar was, but they found them at Megiddo, and they found altars that were as big as 26 feet wide by 4 foot wide. So it's no small task that he, he tears down this altar. Then um, they have the camels. The Midianites had camels. So that was kind of their cavalry. And so they, they come riding, I guess, on these camels. Um, and then another word play you won't catch probably is the nickname uh, Jeroboam is a play on words. Um, let Baal contend with him, the Baal fighter. And it's related to the, the consonants Y-R-B and, and L. Um, so there's no J in Hebrew. All right, it's a Y. So uh, uh, you can see if you take out all the vowels of uh, Jeroboam or Jeroboam that um, change the Y to a J, and then J-R-B-L. So that, that's how the Hebrew works. Um, so this is the, the well-known one of he goes to fight with only how many soldiers? 300. Just 300, right? They start out with 32,000. He dwindles it down to 300. What are you going to do with 300 men? Well, nothing unless God's running the show. And so again, um, God is going to give them victory, and they'll have, um, they'll have peace for, for 40 years. Now, where, where do we find Gideon? Oh, mighty man of valor that you are, right? When the angel shows up to him? Okay, well, he's in a wine press. But, but he's not making grape juice, okay? So, yeah, here is an actual excavation of, in Israel of a, of a wine press, okay? And this is kind of how it works, okay? So you trample on grapes, like barefoot, yeah, squeeze them between your feet, you know. I don't know if they washed their feet or first or after, but anyways. So this is how you make the grape juice. That is not how you thresh wheat. Okay, you thresh wheat in an open field. Okay, and preferably more of a, a higher elevation because as you're um, throwing the wheat up in the air, the chaff gets blown away. And I had—I'm not sure why my second picture didn't show up, but it was—it was the same as this picture, anyways. But so, which one? You don't, you don't thresh down here. The, the wind's not blowing down there. So why is he down there? Because he's hiding from the Midianites. Hiding, hiding. Yes. And God shows up and says, hey, mighty man. You know, I think it's a little bit of a joke there. But Whoops. Um, God will make him into a mighty man. All right? So during the summer months in Israel, warm, moist air is carried eastward from the Mediterranean Sea during the day to be cooled after sunset. If the moist air cools to a dew point, the invisible moisture becomes visible, forming either fog or dew. Since it usually doesn't rain in Israel during the summer months, the moisture is critical to the maturing of produce harvested at the close of summer. Grapes, figs, pomegranates, and melons, etc. They all require this dewfall to ripen. No dew means no summer harvest. So now we're back to this, the Canaanite agricultural cycle and how Baal plays into that. And the people have been unfaithful again uh, to God. So <clears throat> that's what's going on in the, the background to this. So God, though, is the, the one who controls all this. It's not, you know, Baal and his cycle that is the controlling of this. 
So the Israelites vacillate between obeying the Lord and assimilating into the Baal worship around them. In this event, the Lord uh, chooses to demonstrate his power over Baal on a common threshing floor. And so the, the miracle grows out of the natural relationship between Jew and the threshing floor. This is the, the fleece of the dove with Gideon. To take advantage of the wind, threshing floors were located on ridges. In the morning, exposure to the direct rays of the sun caused such high elevations to warm more quickly than the valley floors, making them the first to lose their dew. So in this account, Gideon placed the fleece on the threshing floor and asked the Lord to allow the highly absorbent fleece to be wet while the remaining floor was dry. This followed natural expectation. But then Gideon asked the Lord to demonstrate his power over Baal and the Jewfall by allowing the fleece to remain dry while the threshing floor became saturated with the moisture. So how does everything else get due, but that doesn't? When it happened in just that way, Gideon knew or was believed enough, trusted that the Lord was faithful and that him and not Baal controlled both Jew and the upcoming battle. So it's a control of nature issue. You know, Jesus demonstrates it on the Sea of Galilee in the boat, right? The raging storm. So that, that's what they're doing here. He's like, okay, I live in Canaan, and everybody says Baal controls all this. Well, Baal doesn't control it, Yahweh. Then you show me. You know? Make this wet and dry, make this dry and wet. And so that's what's going on with that. Gideon delivered the tribes of Israel from the uh, scourge of the semi-nomadic raiders who pillaged the land at harvest time. The Midianites and the Amalekites appeared out of the deserts like a plague of locusts, encamping in the fields of ripening grain and devouring the land's produce. Using the camel, these invaders moved quickly and retreated into the deserts before organized pursuit could follow. Seven years of this left the tribes in a destitute position. To relieve the oppression, God sends Gideon. With 300 men, selected at the spring of Herod in the Jezreel Valley, so there we are in the Jezreel Valley again, Gideon carries out a surprise night attack in the Midianite camp near Endor. <clears throat> when does this take place? In the middle watch. The military watches, the first one was sunset from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. The middle one was 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And the third one was 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. sunrise. Okay? And so from... The second one, the middle of 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., is a time period when this takes place. The um, night is black. Everybody's sleeping. And what happens in the middle of the night? They're blowing the shofars, those trumpets. There's a, a picture of one. There's different types, but they come from the, the horns off the animals. Um, and then the bright light as they break the pitchers and the, the torches that they're all carrying and throws the people into confusion. Blaring trumpets and lighted torches struck fear in the hearts of the invaders who fled southeastward, seeking the safety of the desert. The Ephraimites cut off their escape route by seizing the Jordan Ford at Beth Barah, where Oreb and, and Zeb, two Midianite chieftains, were captured. And Gideon and his men pursued their foe across the Jordan River, passing through Sukkoth and Penuel along the Wadi Jebek, taking a caravan route eastward in the desert. Gideon surprised the Midianites again at the oasis of Karkor in the Wadi Shirhan. After the victories, the grateful tribal leaders asked Gideon to be their king, but he refused, believing only Yahweh had the right to rule Israel. And so that is, again, how God supernaturally um, intervenes and brings uh, deliverance for his people. Does he use a, a man? Yes. 
mind this the whole time too. It's like, how did they leave Egypt? Yeah, he told Moses to lead the people, but the, the cloud by day and the fire by night, he, he's the one leading them. He is the one fighting for them, which is what he told them all along. And that's why the, the problem with the ten spies, they said, no, we can't take it. That was a, a slap in the face to God who said, I will go before you. I will drive them out. But they didn't believe. All right. <coughs> Next is Abimelech. Okay, uh, the mad dog son, if you will, of Gideon. Um, he murdered 69 uh, half-brothers. There were 70 of them. Uh, Jotham escaped. He sets up his kingdom at Shechem. And God's anger um, and to the rebellion and treachery results in the Shechemites and Abimelech having an outreach with each other. And so... Um, Abimelech, he's the son of Gideon's Shechemite concubine, Judges 8, verse 31. Um, he colluded with some Shechemites to kill 70 of Abimelech's brothers, Judges 8, 30, and 31. However, his youngest brother, Jotham, survives, Judges 9, 5. He then climbed to the top of Mount Gerizim, and he shouted to the Shechemites below. He foretold the destruction of the men of Shechem by fire, Judges 9, 7 to 21. And later in the same chapter... We read that the people of Shechem rose against Abimelech's leadership. In response, Abimelech fought against the city, and he destroyed it. During the attack, the leaders of Shechem tried to save themselves in the stronghold of the temple of El-Barith. That's Judges 9.46. Um, this picture on the screen is a picture of a fortified temple um, that has been excavated in uh, the city of Shechem. So they tried to hole up there. Abimelech took an axe and he cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, died. And so the archaeologists refer to the tower of Shechem as the, the tower, Migdal is the Hebrew temple or fortress temple of Shechem, which you see um, in the picture. It's been re-examined by several different archaeologists and uh, done work in that, that site for several years. Um, Steger, one of the archaeologists, hypothesized that the courtyard of the temple could have been where Joshua took a large stone and set it up and under the oak near the holy place of the Lord in Joshua 24, 26. Um, so, I don't know. These are the types of things that when they find stuff like this and they try to fit them into the biblical account and uh, you know, do their, their best guess to figure out um, what, what happened there. So that is Abimelech. That's just the name of a, that's a generic name, right? It's not a person. Abimelech? The Abimelech there, uh, that's a name for uh, a king, right? For uh, a ruler. Mm -hmm. Is it the same but, type of thing uh, or just a person? Yeah, I haven't come across that related to this. All I've seen is this is the name of one of the 70 sons. Oh, weird. Now, if it is that, um, I mean, it would fit with some degree. He does try to rule. He, he does try to take over. Um, so it does fit in with that. 
right. The next judge in chapter 10, verses um, 6 through 12, 7, is Jephthah. Okay, I always have a hard time spelling his name. The Ammonites are the oppressors at this stage of the game. They oppressed the tribes of Gilead for 18 years before Jephthah defeated them. Judges 10, 6 through 12, 7. Like Moab, the Ammonites contested Israel's claim in the Transjordan. From their stronghold in uh, Rabbah, which is modern um, Ammon in Jordan, the Ammonites harassed the tribes of Gilead and periodically raided across the Jordan into Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. The elders of Gilead turned to Jephthah, a rogue outcast, though I have not outcast, for help. He defeats the Ammonites at Mizpah and Gilead, and subsequently he conquers 20 towns. And when the men of Ephraim protested his leadership in the war against Ammon, he fought and defeated the Ephraimites near um, Adam or Adam at the fords of the Jordan. And so you can see here <coughs> um, about Jephthah. Um, Jephthah is known for who knows what. What else is he known for? Jephthah, Jephthah, Jephthah. Something specific. For, his, for foolish vow. Yeah, the vow. Okay. Yeah. Yes, his impulsive vow related to his daughter. Okay. Oh, that was him? Yes. This is what this is how you, you can remember these guys. Okay? So Ehud's the left-handed man, Shamgar's got the ox goat, kills three hundred. Um Jephthah has the vow with his daughter. So, um, <laughs> right, that, that's how, like, yeah, those are the types of questions. Yes. So, I mean, you're not going to remember all the years. You're not going to remember all the, you know. And this is only the major judges. We're, we're skipping, the, you know, Tola and the other minor people. So, right. So, <coughs> He, he rallies the people, okay? And again, one of the things that you're looking at all through here is that whoever the oppressor is, okay, they're oppressing first off for what reason? Because what? Yes, exactly, okay? Israel's been disobedient, rebellious, unfaithful to the covenant, okay? Um, but while they're doing this, generally what's happening is they're either raiding or they're encroaching upon their land. So they're taking the lands back, which is a problem going back to the Abrahamic covenant, right? Because God promises them the land. Now, of course, they, they're supposed to behave themselves, but they're losing the land again. So that's a constant theme throughout uh, the scriptural uh, text, especially all through the Old Testament, of getting this land. So <clears throat> he uh, defeats um, and is able to uh, take back some of the lands. Now, the vow that he makes has a lot of debate about it as well. You basically have two options. Either he uh, killed the daughter or he didn't. I mean, that's what it boils down to. <coughs> Some people suggest that uh, she went and served in uh, you know, the temple for the rest of her life. If you just plain read the text, it would look like he sacrifices her. Now, how, how could you... How could you be used by God like that and go do something so foolish? Um, I understand, but it's the same thing today. How, how do pastors um, used by God go and uh, commit adultery? How 
how do they go run off with the uh, church money? How do how does Samson act so foolishly? Uh, I mean, how, how does this happen? So, I don't think that it's completely uh, unthinkable that somebody would do that. Remember, the syncretism, the Canaanite culture, you know, this was part of what was going on there. They've been living there, you know, for some time now. They've been um, not only syncretized, but inundated with everything that's going on there. And the Judges is a time period of uh, topsy-turvy. It's, it's unstable. And they're always wondering and worrying about who's the next uh, group that's going to come in here. You know, am I going to get my crops raided this year? Is there a new um, enemy coming in? So when that happens, remember, Judges is about testing the people, right? It's kind of uh, another wilderness episode. So I, I think it's within reason that that is what he did. Uh, I think he made a rash vow. He shouldn't have made it. Um, and he probably at the time wasn't considering that when he walks home, when he gets home, his daughter would be the first thing out the door. Well, let me ask so, you this. Why would God honor that vow which is against his word? What do you mean by honor? Why would God tell him that I don't want this. You, you, it's a stupid vow. I'm not gonna. I don't want your daughter. Well, I think you could ask that about almost any type of sin. Oh, sin. Yeah. So he saw it as a, a good thing. Yeah. You keep his well, word. or yeah, or at least he didn't want to go back on his word. One of the two. I don't. This is what I'm saying. I don't know. If he killed him, if he killed her, no, God did not see it as a good thing. He forbids it. He forbids child sacrifice. And the only occurrence we have of God, you know, commanding that is Abraham, which he stopped. And that also was a test against him. Test is everywhere. It's the whole, the whole thing. Test. So he stopped that, and he provided, you know, the lamb. So there's no way that God uh, is supporting that, that God initiated it, or that God, uh, you know, would reward or bless him for that. Whether or not he actually did it, uh, you know, the jury's still out on it. Are the text of the No, that's why there's such debate about it. But it says he, it said it fulfilled the vow. The question is, did he really kill her, or does it mean something else? So, um, I think it probably means he killed her, but I could be wrong. Um, but either way, it does not promote that practice. It's a similar thing um, to... Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus, who basically lie to Pharaoh and say, hey, you know, these, these Hebrew women, they just give birth so fast, we can't get there on time. You know, because Pharaoh had said to kill the baby boys. Well, I don't think that's exactly accurate. You know, um, they made up a story as to why they hadn't carried out the Pharaoh's orders. And then God blesses them. People say, oh, see, it's okay to lie. God blessed their life. He didn't bless their life. Lying is condemned everywhere in Scripture. He blessed them because they were faithful to him and not killing the boys. Like there's that's very different things, um, and that happens again with Rahab. She lies about the spies, and God saves her. Did he bless her and save her because she lied about the spies? No, he blessed her and saved her in spite of that. He, he blessed her and saved her because she chose him, even though in choosing him, she lied. And so lying is good. 
let me just make a denominational comment real quick. So this is the same thing with, with all the denominational uh, theological um, arguments. Okay? So obviously they're not all right. That's impossible. Right. So, but the thing is, and what I found is that as I've met different people from you know various, various walks of life yeah. and denominations, is that I think it's about faith. Yep. God is, God is blessing people who are faithful to him and walk with him, despite the fact that none of us have our theology 100% correct. And it's the same thing. It's, it's Rahab. She chooses God. She chooses Hallelujah. Yahweh over the, the Canaanites. It's, it's the same thing with uh, Shepherd and Pua. Pua. They choose Yahweh over the Pharaoh. You know? And th- that's our bottom line. That's you and me. Choose Yahweh over the gods of the age. And and it's the same thing. All right. Um, good interruption. We got to move. <coughs> Samson, the last major judge, and then I have um, one more thing to cover. So the Philistines arrive with ferociousness. They invade and they conquer with advanced weaponry. Okay. So they're part of the Sea Peoples. They're on the coastal plain, and are they the south or the north? You said the Philistines. 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 South or north? South. South. south right. Phoenicians in the north. So. The new Philistine cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and, and Ekron. So you're going to see them pop up, okay, all through Samson's, and, but not just Samson's era. They're also in the other historical books, okay? Travels to the, the Shephelah. This is the low hills between the coastal plain and the, the central or high hills of, of Judah. So the, the Philistines are in the plain. The hill country is where the Israelites live, and in between are lower hills. Right? Like it's going from, you know, flat to a little bit hilly to bigger hills. Okay? So this is what goes on here. Now this covers chapters 13 to 16. So this is quite a chunk of text. Um, <coughs> the um, map here, you probably can't um, really see it from, from back there. But this one over here shows um, some of the, let's see, what's this say? Some cities with uh, Aegean-type artifacts. So this is probably where they found um, Sea People artifacts in, some, in the, the red-dotted cities. So you can see that as, as they came in, um, they did take up you know, residence in various places um, throughout here. So with Samson, the shuffle of figures prominently in the conquest and the settlement. And we'll go back here. Okay, the, so the, the shuffle area. First, Judah took possession of the eastern hills around Bethlehem. Then its clans spread out to the northern Shephelah by establishing um, amicable relationships with the Canaanites in the area. Okay? Meanwhile, other Hebrew tribes seized the southern hilllands of Judea, and the fall of Latish marked the conclusion to this phase of the conquest. Only uh, Gezer, Gezer, Gezer and its neighboring Amorite cities stood up to the pressure of the Israelites. So these events occurred during the decline of the um, 19th Egyptian dynasty, <coughs> when the central authority over Canaan had ceased. We kind of talked about that in the very beginning. In the northern Shephelah, a group of Canaanite fortresses remains untaken. Several generations after the Israelite, the, the Sea Peoples come in, the Philistines, and invaded the coastal plain by land and sea, and they became complete masters of the south Canaanite coast. Where do they come from? Either uh, Crete or... Uh, Greece mainland, um, Mycenaean, up, up, up in there. Okay. <coughs> um, thrusting inland from their stronghold of Ekron and Gath on the edge of the Shephelah and commanding strategic valley passes, 
the Philistines penetrated eventually into the eastern Shephelah. The narratives of Samson reflect the beginning of this conflict in the Shephelah when pressure was first exerted against the tribe of Dan, Judges 15, 9-20. The boundary between the Philistines and the Israelites then lay between Ekron and Beth uh, Shemesh. The struggle for the control of the Shephelah reached its climax when the house of Eli is defeated, that's in 1 Samuel 4, and Shiloh, then the center of the northern Israel, was destroyed. By the beginning of Saul's reign, there were Philistine garrisons at uh, Geba of Benjamin, and for some 150 years, the Philistines dominated uh, the Shephelah with their superior monopoly of iron smelting, perhaps from the Hittites. It was in this military crisis for Israel that the United Israelite monarchy was forged as a new political institution that transformed Palestine, which is what we'll get into uh, probably next week. So this, this area, that this valley, all right, so you can see how important the valleys are to many of the battles that we have been looking at. <coughs> now with Samson, we have a few other things that we need to know about him. First off, he's a Nazarite, okay? I'm not sure if I uploaded, I think I did. Did I upload the Nazarite paper, okay? So just a couple of things about the Nazarites. They were separated to God. He was a Nazarite from birth. Um, so was uh, the prophet Samuel. Um, and they could not uh, touch anything dead. They couldn't eat um, anything that came from uh, the grapes, not just fermented. They couldn't even have you know the grapes. And this was a, a total separation to be used um, for God. Now, Samson broke his vow. Like in multiple occurrences. He, he not only broke like the Israelite covenant with God, he, he broke the Nazarite vow. Um, he's not supposed to be touching dead animals, but he's scooping you know, honey out of dead lion carcasses. So all these different things just, just show his, his disregard for it. They didn't have any prophets back then to read them in, like in the days of David, like a Nathan or a, you know, Isaiah, to say, Samson, come on, well, let's go. Um, there, there are prophets during the time period. Um, I, they don't have some of the, the famous names, but uh, you have the guy, the prophet, who was the prophet eaten by the lion? Um, oh, okay. So there, there are prophets in this, this so era. So he was being spoken to, but he's just like, whatever. Uh, it's not like he doesn't know. His okay. parents didn't want him marrying a Philistine girl. I mean, he did what he wanted. Um, although okay. the backstory says that God was using this to get him infiltrated with the Philistines so that he could punish the Philistines. So here's he kills 30 and, and 14, uh, 19. This is related to the whole um, the wedding um, riddle and stuff, right? It burns the farmland. He, there's a great slaughter in 15.8. He kills 1,000 with the jawbone of a donkey in 15.15, and then he destroys the temple and probably 3,000 or, or more in 16.30. And then they have uh, you know peace, etc. for for 20 years, okay? Uh, Samson um, pushes down the pillars. Th this is just some remnants of some pillars they found made by Philistines in, in temple areas. We don't know exactly if they were like this, you know? Uh, he was somehow standing between them, and whether he pushes the pillar off its foundational base or it was a, uh, you know, a full pillar that uh, he was able to, like, more break instead of push off its base. Um, however it was, the point is that God was behind this whole thing. Like, he, he was weak as a little boy. And so who gave him back his strength? God did. And it wasn't in his hair. His hair was a sign of the covenant. The hair, not cutting the hair, was the Nazarite vow. 
Nazarite vow set you apart to God that showed that you were God's man for the hour and to be used only for God. Well, he broke every aspect of it. And then when the hair was cut, that's kind of, maybe it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. That was just like, whatever, you know, we're not doing anything kind of for God in a sense. And so it says uh, he tried to break the, the cords just like the previous time, but he didn't realize the spirit of God had left him. Okay? So the power's not in his hair. The hair was just the sign or the symbol of it. Um, just like the, the covenant or the ark itself is not the power, God is. The circumcision itself is not the power, God is. The sign of the covenant. Okay? And so Samson, he's um, from the tribe of Dan. He's born in the critical space of the Sorak Valley. The Philistines needed to conquer this to get a foothold into the Judean hill country. So if the Philistines get this area, they get to move into the Israelite territory and take their land. The closer the Philistines got to Judah, the more of them Samson, take, Samson takes out. So there's an escalation in how many Philistines died. At the same time, there's an, uh, an increase in how close they are to the Judean um, households. That's not the word I want, but... Uh, territory. So the security of Israel in the land is what's being threatened. Okay, so we get to the end of the book of Judges, and the security of the land is, is still in question, still in jeopardy. And it's related to whether or not we trust God and let him take care of it. So this just shows uh, where the judges were here. Um, Othniel, Samson, who else did we talk about? Ehud and Deborah, Gideon, Shamgar's up here, Jephthah over here. Okay? So the red on here is, is what they count as the major judges, the six major judges, Othniel, um, Samson, Ehud, Deborah, Jephthah, and Gideon. And then we only touched on Shamgar's the only minor judge we touched on. Okay? Now, that being said, the book of Judges ends with two other stories, and then the book of Ruth is also part of Judges. So you got Micah and the priest in 17 and 18, and the Levite and the concubine in 19 and 21. Um, in these two stories, okay, these are actually um, critical stories to the narrative flow of the book of Judges. Both victims are from Bethlehem, okay, Judah, and victimized in Ephraim. All right, in both stories. Um, there is a war on the Benjamites that ensues after this because they won't turn over the people who did this. And Saul, who is the first king, is from Gibeah of Benjamin. There's no, there's no accident that Judges ends with this, this travesty in the tribe of Benjamin. The rest of the Israelite um, tribes attacking and going to war with Benjamin, um, these examples of, of grotesque evil and unfaithfulness to God coming out of Benjamin, and then our first king is from Benjamin. Wow. Wow. Now, we can get into why he's the first king next week or whatever, but that's not an accident is my point, okay? <clears throat> when the Levite has this concubine, okay, which the Levite's a priest, right? So he's supposed to be representing God, the people, etc. So he's got his concubine that comes back after being uh, raped all night. And he chops her up into pieces and sends her to the tribes. Okay? That is a call of war. That's what that's all about. He's calling the, I mean, it's grotesque. I'm not saying you should replicate it. Um, please don't. Um, what I'm saying is that that's a call to war to the tribes. 
this is what has happened here. This is unacceptable, and something needs to be done about it. And so that's the subpoena, okay? Show up. Um, we, can we can talk more about that, but we don't really have time. But the even, even Micah and the priest, like having your own priest, household idols, which is what that picture is. Again, this is all, like, where's the faithfulness of the people? So we started off with Othniel, Caleb's nephew, right? Um, Caleb's faithful. Him and Joshua, the only two of the old generation that come into the land. Looks like his family is still faithful. Othniel, we get to the last judge. We have Samson. What a punk, right? Then after Samson, the, this book's not over. We got these four other chapters. How many? Five chapters, okay? That demonstrate the um, unfaithfulness of, of the priests, the Levites, and how the other tribes are treating them, and the tribe of Benjamin. Then you hit Judges, okay? I mean, Ruth, I'm sorry. Uh, four little chapters, right? Takes place during the time of Judges. That's why we're hitting it right now. The Ephrathites, okay? That, that's, that's where um, they're from. They're, they're in Bethlehem, which is Judah again. That's the same place that I just told you. Both victims are from Bethlehem of Judah. But there's some good stuff in Bethlehem because that's where Naomi's at, right? They go to Moab and they come back again. You see God's grace and providence and the apparent mayhem that brings forth the lineage of David and eventually Jesus. And so God's still at work in this whole mess, in this craziness, in this chaos, and even in the midst of a, a repugnant place, mm. there are mm. people that are still faithful to God. And that's what you have an example of here. And God takes them, and even the story of Ruth, I mean, she's Bethlehem. It's, it's the house of bread, but there's no food. There's no bread in the house of bread, you know? And so they leave, but then they come back, and she comes back empty. So she doesn't come back empty. She comes back with Ruth, but Ruth's a Moabitess. Moabites, we've been fighting with the Moab people earlier in Judges, right? <laughs> and, and the Moabite people, they come from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. And so here you have Ruth that shows up in the picture. And then, of course, she meets Boaz. And then through them, you know, Obed, Jesse, David. And that prepares us for the Jesus. monarchy and the king that show up next. Wow. So um, that's the books of Judges and Ruth and the background material with that. So. Let's uh, conclude. That'll conclude today's.